All right. We are continuing our Advent series, and we are studying the Christmas story from Mary's perspective. We started this last week, and this week we're continuing it in Luke chapter 1. We're studying the Christmas story from Mary's perspective, the coming of Jesus to earth from the recorded viewpoint of his mother, and it's a unique viewpoint. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, and our passage today starts in verse 39, where Gretchen was reading from. But we're going to set the scene first. Some of you may not have been here last week. Some of you may not have the world's best memory. And so we're going to do a little bit of a recap to get us to the point where our passage starts this morning. Remember, we're reading real history here, okay? This is not just some fictional morality tale meant to make us feel good around the holiday season. This book was recorded by an actual first century Greek doctor named Luke, and he interviewed eyewitnesses to the events of the life of Jesus, and under the guiding inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recorded those events for us in the gospel that we're reading today. In the passage that Anthony taught last week, we were introduced to an otherwise unremarkable, soon-to-be-married young woman named Mary, who was from an equally unremarkable little backwoods town called Nazareth that nobody respected. There was no good reason that she should have been the focal point of any sort of ancient writing that would be recorded for us, except for some miraculous things that God did in her life that we read about last week. Mary was rather shockingly visited by the angel Gabriel. And we heard last week about all that Gabriel told her. Gabriel gave her this amazing announcement that despite her virginity, she was going to miraculously be the mother of the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus was going to be his name, the one who would save his people from their sins. And we noticed last week how Mary, clearly a godly and faithful young woman, was willing to trust God, but wasn't exactly excited about this news that she got. And for very good reason. You see, Mary was about to become a very unpopular person. As soon as she started to show her pregnancy, she was going to be instantly rejected, probably by her family, by her friends, by her religious community. She was going to experience shame and rejection as an unwed mother who, from everybody else's perspective, would have clearly broken her betrothal vows to Joseph. Now, Joseph, her betrothed, her fiancé, wouldn't actually end up rejecting her as a result of this pregnancy because God was very merciful to Joseph too. God sent an angel to Joseph to give him the same news that the angel had given to Mary and convince Joseph that Mary hadn't been cheating on him. And that, she need, and that he needed to keep her. And so she had one ally in Joseph. And then, because of something that Gabriel said to her in last week's passage, Mary likely knew that she had at least one other ally. And that would be her distant cousin, Elizabeth, who lived in another town. Gabriel told her that Elizabeth, despite being a fairly old woman, we're not told exactly how old, but definitely older than she should have been in order to get pregnant, she was also carrying a baby, very miraculously conceived, and she would understand what Mary was going through. And so that's the context and the setting for our story today. Mary knows that Elizabeth is someone that she can probably go to for encouragement, comfort, support, refuge even, as we're going to find. We're going to follow Mary to Elizabeth's house, 
And our entire passage today is focused on a remarkable interaction between Elizabeth and Mary, these two pretty incredible expectant mothers who we read about in this passage. Now, a quick side note about this context. This is not the main point of the passage, but it is not lost on me that when God wanted very socially elevated, highly educated Luke to record the events of the buildup to the sending of the Messiah, that God chose two very ordinary women to speak extraordinary words that we're going to learn from today. God didn't choose the men in religious leadership there in Nazareth or the other cities. God didn't even choose the husbands of these two women. In fact, if you read earlier in this passage, it's kind of humorously ironic that the husband of Elizabeth was actually miraculously muted by God for the entire duration of her pregnancy. God wanted Elizabeth to be speaking here, not Zechariah, the priest. And so it's not lost on me today that we are learning from some remarkable women. Remarkable not because of who they were, but remarkable because of who God is. And while I'm the one standing here teaching this morning, I recognize and I am very grateful for the fact that we're going to be taught today by two biblically literate, spirit-filled women who God chose to play just as foundational a role in establishing Jesus' kingdom as any of the disciples or the apostles that we read about later. Like I said, it's just a side note, but it's an important part of this context to keep in mind to really understand what's happening here. So let's begin reading in verse 39. I believe most of the passages will be on screen. If you need a Bible, I think there are also some out at the entrances as well. Verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, Mary makes a beeline for Elizabeth's house in another town. Mary believes that God is going to fulfill his promise that despite her being a virgin, she is going to conceive and become pregnant with the Messiah, and that is a lot for her. Luke doesn't tell us specifically, but I really do think that Mary goes to her distant cousin not just to go hang out with another fellow pregnant woman. I think she's going to her cousin for comfort, for encouragement, for refuge from the rejection and the shame that she is likely to start experiencing in her hometown of Nazareth. She gets to Elizabeth's door, and she greets her before she sees anyone. And this makes total sense to me, because my family does this in a really weird way. And this is actually exactly how I envision this going. All right? So in my family, we have this very strange tradition. If you've ever been to our house, and a lot of you have been, when one of us arrives home, we have this tradition of greeting whoever is in our house, or if I visit one of my relatives' houses, we all do this, we hoot at each other, all right? So th this is how it goes. I walk up to my door, and I get to the front door, and I open the door, and regardless of whether anybody is inside who I can see, I go, hoot, just like that, all right? And then the proper response, Lindsay, is, yep, there we go. <laughs> Lindsay now hates me, all right, but... That's what we do. We hoot at each other. This started with my mom way back when she was a kid in South Carolina. She started this with her family and has carried on as a family tradition. And we know that if we hear a hoot at our front door, that it's a family member or a very close friend. It's someone we know, someone we trust. And while it is a weird tradition, it's a fun one. And so every time I read this passage, and I've read it a lot in the last couple of weeks, 
I can't help it. This is how I imagine that it went. Now, I know enough about the Greek that Luke was writing in. I know enough about ancient Jewish culture that they probably didn't hoot like owls at each other when they came to the door. But I'm just letting you know that's how I imagine that Mary greeted Elizabeth, and Elizabeth suddenly knew that this was a relative. So here's what's happening. Verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So before Elizabeth even sees Mary, she hears her greeting, and two absolutely remarkable things happen. One, Elizabeth's baby leaps in her womb, like does a crane kick or a box jump or something very unusual for second trimester prenatal movement. This was unusual. Elizabeth noticed it. And then a second thing happens. Elizabeth receives a special, miraculous filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, Elizabeth, as a believer, was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as all believers always have been throughout all time. But the Spirit came on people for very special and prophetic reasons, more so than just the indwelling of the Spirit that all believers receive. And that happens here to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit supernaturally reveals to her several things that she couldn't possibly have known by then. Elizabeth had no idea of Mary's situation. News hadn't made it from Nazareth to Elizabeth's town. Mary wasn't, you know, on Instagram going, it's a boy, hashtag blessed, and word was making it all over Judea. That's not how this worked. Elizabeth had no idea. And so the things that we read Elizabeth talking about here were actually revealed to her supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Because Mary's arrival would have been the very first that Elizabeth could have heard this news. But the Holy Spirit inspires Elizabeth to make an amazing proclamation to Mary. In a sense, continuing the prophetic message of the angel Gabriel to Mary. Elizabeth declares, first, that both Mary and her child are incomparably blessed by God. Keep reading the book of Luke, and you find out why. And then Elizabeth continues with a question that shows the depth of what the Spirit was actually revealing to her. Elizabeth asks why she is so favored as to be visited by, quote, the mother of my Lord. Consider that for a moment. Elizabeth was the wife of a priest. Elizabeth knew her Bible, our Old Testament. Elizabeth knew that if she called someone God who was not God, that was blasphemy. This was revealed by the Holy Spirit that the baby that Mary was carrying was actually God himself. That's what this word Lord means. It's what it means every time you find it in the New Testament, referring to Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit. The word Lord means God, and Elizabeth recognized this baby is my God. She recognized that because the Holy Spirit revealed it to her. If, and, and the miracles don't stop there. Okay? Elizabeth has said many miraculous things here, and the miracles continue. Elizabeth confirms that what the angel had told her husband, Zacharias, 
earlier on about their own miraculous child who would become John the Baptist. She's carrying John, and Elizabeth confirms that what the Spirit and what the angel had told them about John was true, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Obviously miraculous, not normal. But Elizabeth confirms it when she says, as soon as your voice reached my ears, my baby leaped in an unusual way for joy. The Spirit revealed to her that the leaping, the movement of her baby inside of her was not just some normal second trimester movement. It was joy being experienced by an unborn child recognizing the presence of the Messiah. This is remarkable what is happening here. This would not be the first time, or this was the first time, but would not be the last time, excuse me, that John the Baptist would point others to the presence of Jesus. He starts it from within his mother's womb. And then finally, Elizabeth, in her prophetic statement here, ends this spirit-filled declaration with a blessing on Mary, a blessing for having believed the promises of God to her. Again, the spirit revealing to Elizabeth that Mary was believing something, something that Elizabeth couldn't see for herself. She was able to understand the very heart and faith of her cousin. And so Mary, encouraged by Elizabeth's prophetic, spirit-filled greeting, shows that her faith has finally overcome her initial uncertainty and concern that we well understand. And she overflows in joyful excitement for what God is clearly doing and overflows in song in verses 46 to 55. Let's read this together. Verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors." Mary responds to Elizabeth with what has become one of the most famous prayers or songs of praise in all the Bible. I would imagine it probably falls right behind the Lord's Prayer, maybe Psalm 23, maybe Psalm 100, at the top of the Christian charts of most popular biblical prayers. These are the kinds of things that get repeated over and over again in church liturgies that people repeat to themselves in times of joy in praising God or in times of trouble to comfort themselves. God, the Holy Spirit, gives these words to Mary, and she proclaims exultant praise for God. This is often called Mary's song, or the Magnificat. You might have heard it referred to as that. Magnificat is just the first word of this song of praise in Latin. So in the Latin Bible that was used for more than a thousand years and is still in use today, the very first word of these verses is Magnificat, glorifies. So if you've ever heard it called the Magnificat, that's why. And what this is, is a theologically rich, deeply countercultural exaltation in what God has done, in what God is doing, and what God is going to do 
through his redemptive plan that now has Mary and her unborn child right at the center of the story. It's full of familiar biblical language describing God. In fact, there are many commentators who have pointed out the similarities between Mary's song and the famous words of another woman in the Bible, Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're not going to take the time to read that this morning, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah has been praying and praying and begging God for a child that she could not naturally conceive, and God gives her a child. And Hannah pours out in exultant praise to God using many of the same phrases that Mary now uses in Luke chapter 1. Now, there are some scholars who will try to argue that the use of very similar language being attributed to Mary in this passage is somehow proof that the writer here was basically plagiarizing from the Old Testament, that these weren't really the words of some uneducated Jewish girl named Mary. The thing about that is that it really shows disparaging ignorance of Jewish religious culture. So if you know anything about Jewish culture, kids were raised from their very earliest days knowing the stories of their forefathers and foremothers. And Mary, from everything we can tell, was raised as a godly Jewish girl. She was raised in a faithful family. She knew the Bible. And her song of praise in reaction to Elizabeth's prophecy very likely just draws from her familiarity with the scriptures. Scriptures that she had learned from her childhood, in her family, and in the synagogue. She knew this stuff. Her heart and mind were saturated with God's word, and those phrases just naturally flowed out of her as she praised God. I was very blessed to be raised in a faithful Christian home, and to this day, there are Bible verses and there are songs that immediately just come to mind and flow out of me in times of joy or in times of trouble. This is normal. And this is what was happening for Mary. She was praising God, knowing the word of God. And so for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to dive into this song of praise by Mary. And we're going to see exactly how she viewed the coming of Jesus. Now, Mary never once mentions a baby. She never mentions a star. She never mentions a manger. She never, never mentions angel choruses who you read about later in Luke. She never even mentions Jesus' name in this song. But I think you're going to find that this song is every bit as much of a Christmas carol as Joy to the World or Hark the Herald Angels Sing. This song is all about Advent. It's all about eagerly looking forward to God fulfilling his redemptive plan through the miracle baby that she was carrying. Let's look at the rich meaning that Mary finds in Jesus' coming. First, we're going to find this morning that Jesus' coming means that God cares for the powerless. God cares for the powerless. I mentioned a moment ago that Mary's song was not only theologically rich, but it's deeply countercultural. And this is why I say that. Multiple times in this hymn of praise, Mary makes the point that God notices and helps lowly and powerless people instead of favoring the proud and powerful. And this was countercultural. The Greco-Roman culture that Mary lived in was the exact opposite of this. There were very distinct class systems that were reflected throughout society. And even Greek and Roman religions held that their gods cared very little for enslaved people, for impoverished people, for the fatherless. The powerless in society were not honored in this culture. 
But what Mary says is that God thinks very different than culture about these issues. Mary, in fact, identifies herself in the very crowd that would have held no status in this culture. In verse 48, she says, For he, that is God, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. That word servant in Greek is the exact same word that's very often translated slave. It means slave or servant, but the point is, it's someone with zero social status. Mary recognized that she herself is someone with no status socially and no inherent status before God for which God should actually honor her or help her in any way. And yet God has noticed and favored her, she says. Later in her song, in verses 52 to 53, she expands this point beyond herself to say that in what God is doing through her and through the child she's carrying, in verse 52, he has lifted up the humble. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And in contrast, in verses 51 through 53, God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has sent the rich away empty. I believe that here, as in most of her song, Mary is not just referring to the past. We could nerd out here, and if any of you want to talk about this afterwards, we can nerd out about the Greek aorist prophetic tense. I think that's what Mary is using here. It's a past tense that's actually describing things that are so certain that will happen in the future, you can talk about them as if they have already happened. Mary is using that kind of a tense here. And so she is not just talking about past historical events and biblical history, which this certainly does describe, but she is also prophetically pointing to what God will do through the Messiah that she will give birth to. And while this was countercultural, it was deeply consistent with what God says about himself over and over again throughout her Bible that she knew well, our Old Testament, where God is constantly noticing, God is caring for, God is advocating for, God is providing for, God is defending and rescuing the most powerless in society. That happens over and over again throughout our Bible. This is consistent with who our God is. And multiple times in Scripture, God actually pronounces severe judgment on those who would abuse the poor, ignore the orphan, fail to feed the hungry, despise the immigrant. And his promised Savior would be the opposite of all of those injustices. Jesus would come not to save the rich and the self-righteous and the socially elevated. Jesus would show up as a very humble person, born, raised, and educated to be a carpenter, and Jesus would go around dining with social outcasts, befriending fishermen and tax collectors, healing the sick and the broken and caring about them, feeding the hungry multitudes, and ultimately saving the least, the last, and the lost. God opened Mary's eyes to see that everything about his care for the powerless would actually be amplified through the coming of Jesus, this was the baby she was carrying. This is what God was going to do. Jesus' coming means that God cares for the powerless. And that raises a question for us, and maybe a hard question. Do our lives, does our church community, do our values reflect those of this promised Messiah? Does our generosity this Christmas season look just like our culture's? as we perhaps only give and receive gifts with those in our own privileged circles? 
Or do we, like Jesus, pour out ourselves in mercy for those that our culture fails to care for, for the powerless around us, for those who can't give us anything in return? I know that we're not taking our Advent offering quite yet this morning, but might that be a way in just a few minutes to very practically and actively respond to what God is teaching through Mary's song about how much he cares for the powerless and allow that to be a way to reflect that back to God. Jesus' coming means that God cares for the powerless. Jesus' coming also means that God keeps his promises. We find this in verses 54 to 55 of Mary's song. Mary reminds us of God's covenant promises to Israel and Abraham and other ancestors. Verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, why does Mary bring up promises made, in some of these cases, thousands of years before? Well, it's because by sending the Messiah through a virgin who was also in the line of King David and who would redeem God's people, God was going to fulfill in one little baby boy all of these promises and prophecies to rescue his people, to defeat evil, to restore creation, and to establish a kingdom that would never end. It was going to happen through this baby. All of those promises from all of those millennia before were going to be fulfilled in Jesus. Mary is seeing the big picture here. This miraculous pregnancy of hers wasn't just about her, wasn't just about Nazareth, wasn't even just about national Israel. Jesus' coming was about a cosmic vision that God had been setting from day one about God perfectly fulfilling millennia of promises to Adam, to Abraham, to Jacob, to David, all in mercy to his people throughout all generations Jesus' coming means that God keeps his promises. From the littlest promises to the biggest promises, that's what Jesus' coming tells us about God. And the greatest way that we see God keeping his promises is actually proven in the third truth that we're going to see in Mary's song. Jesus' coming means that God cares for the powerless, that, God's coming, that Jesus' coming means that God keeps his promises, and finally, Jesus' coming means that God saves his people. Mary states a remarkable but kind of easy-to-miss truth right at the very beginning of her song. Look at verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Elizabeth had referred to Mary's baby as her Lord, her God. That's a big deal. That's a big claim to make about this baby. Mary takes it a step further. Mary says, not only is this her Lord, he will be her Savior. Savior from what? It's a question that we probably need to ask here. Because there are a lot of, there are whole world religions that believe that Mary didn't need a Savior. Mary was sinless. Mary was perfect. So what was Mary needing to be saved from? Well, if you read the story of Jesus' life, you'll find that there were many who believed that he wasn't a savior from sin or from brokenness, that there were many who believed that Jesus was a savior from Roman oppression. There were many who thought that Jesus came to save their nation from the tyranny of Roman rule and Roman occupation. They assumed that God cared primarily about their nationalism, about their ethnicity, and protecting that and preserving that. But that was thinking so much too small 
about God's vision for the world. Jesus' purpose was far greater than that. When Mary says, my Savior, she's using Savior in the same sense that Savior will get used throughout the rest of the New Testament. She's referring to what the rest of the New Testament makes its central theme, that Jesus is fulfilling his name and all of God's promises of redemption by saving his people from their sins. Jesus was born into a world of sin and brokenness, and he would go on to live a perfect, sinless life. He would die as a substitute for sinners like you and me, and he would rise from the dead, defeating sin and death, and guaranteeing eternal life for all who will believe in him. That's what it means that he's the Savior. And Mary recognized that she needed this Savior every bit as much as anyone else on this planet. Mary was just a normal, broken, sinful, humble human like the rest of us. And in these verses, Mary exalts that through God's sending of Jesus through her, that she will actually get to experience God's salvation for herself. And for Mary, that realization produces rich, rich overflowing joy. And that's the song that we have this morning. Mary sings this song because she knows that she gets a savior out of this promise that God is keeping. Jesus' coming clearly meant so much to Mary. It meant that God cares for the powerless, that God keeps his promises, and that God saves her and all his people. And she couldn't contain her happiness and her joy over those coming and amazing realities. We're observing Advent on these Sundays. We're observing Advent in remembrance of the first time that God sent his son to earth that we're reading about here, and Advent in the sense of anticipation of his ultimate return to complete the salvation he has started, to restore all things, and finish this full story of redemption. So I'd ask you this morning, what does Jesus' coming mean to you? We've read about what it means to Mary. So what does Jesus' coming mean to you today? Is the story of Jesus' coming that we read here in Luke and in John and in Mark and in Matthew all told from different perspectives, is Jesus' coming just a sentimental, heartwarming story of a baby and shepherds and angels that provides the subject of pretty Christmas carols and a good reason to give fun gifts in two weeks? Or is this story, should this story be for us, the story of how much God cares for a world of powerless sinners like you and me? So much so that he made covenant promises from the very beginning of time to rescue and save us and fulfilled those promises by sending Jesus, born to this virgin Mary, to save his people from their sins. If you've never seen the Christmas story that way, like Mary was seeing it, I invite you to look at the story that way. I invite you to respond to what you've heard today by trusting in Jesus to save you, just like Mary recognized that she needed this salvation. And if you do trust and follow Jesus, I invite you to think deeply again about what God has done for you by sending Jesus into this world. And let that reality, like it did for Mary, fill your heart and your voice and your life with joyful praise this Advent season. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this Advent story. We thank you for the words of Elizabeth and of Mary that point us to the amazing realities of what you had planned from the beginning of time in the sending of Jesus to this world. Thank you that you care for the powerless, or else none of us would have any hope. Thank you that you are a promise-keeping God, and so we can trust you. And thank you that you have purposed and actually acted through Jesus to save people like us from our sins. Help us to rejoice in that this Advent season. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.